Kulaktakat, kia ora, ofa. This is your host, Arshia Takun, here at Y, Indigenous Words and Ideas Podcast. And in this episode, I wanted to explore food. And so I've titled it Wa Meakai Food. Uh, wa is a uh, Kiche Maya word that refers to food, oftentimes with the assumption of corn because of its prominence within Mayan cosmogony, cosmology, and ancestral diet. Meakai comes from Leafagatonga, which refers to food, uh, meaning something that you eat. Kai being a, a verb for eating, and mea being something or the thing that you would eat. And so kind of just using those words um, because they're close to my realm of interest and research and, and also personally, uh, to think about food kind of broadly and generally. And so to begin, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this is because, uh, one, I, I love food. I like to eat. <laughs> I like to cook. Um, but I've also, you know, for a long time thought about what eating healthy means, what uh, does it mean to be healthy. And I'm just going to share some of my personal insights, my personal views around this based off of my experience and, and research for, for your consideration. Again, completely up to you. Uh, what you take from it, and uh, what what you find useful. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I recall was a class that I took with Clayton Pierce uh, during my master's program around eco-justice and food justice. And I had never heard those terms before, had no idea what it was referring to. And in that class, I got introduced to a lot of different ideas and, and terms and concepts, of which I'll I'll share a few of them here and just kind of give a brief introduction to them, just because it's worth noting if you're not familiar with them, but also just kind of to begin to open up the role, this huge complex role that food plays, which has always played. I mean, obviously we can't live or survive without calories, without these nutrients um, like water. And you know, there's a lot of different things that we can learn from thinking about food in a variety of different uh, perspectives or ways. And so uh, one of those is food security or food insecurity, which it refers to, in my understanding, people's access to a sustainable source of food and uh, nutritious food and enough calories. And so food security would be when you have that and food insecurity would be when you don't. You know, it may refer to calories in a general sense, but it may also be referring to nutrients. And so in some cases, people might have access to high calorie foods, but zero or low nutrition in that in those calories in that energy and so that would tie into again access one thing that's linked to that also is food waste which is what it sounds like the production of waste and you know drawing from previous example that i gave in the past with the modernity and indigeneity episode uh, winona leduc talks about how one of the biggest things that we've produced through industrialization and modernity is waste. It's the biggest byproduct of everything. And if you think about everything that we're often forced to participate in within the world that we've inherited and live in is tied to waste, right? The packaging around food and products and and the like. And here in Aotearoa, it's actually quite recent that they banned plastic bags through groceries, but that's still the case in many places around the world. 
And so that's just one example. That's the packaging, right? But then there's the food itself, like how much food is actually wasted. And here, here in New Zealand, it's not great either. We we import here more than we consume. We we export <laughs> as well, where we could be producing enough to sustain the local population. And if we jump over to the U.S., it's a much worse ratio in regards to that. I remember when I was dating my partner and I don't know how it came up, but you know, the, the idea of a food fight, for example, and, and she said to me, oh man, this, this is just such a U.S. thing. And I was like, well, what do you mean? How do you mean? And, and you know, and she explained that that was just something that was just so foreign to her, but was something that she had become aware of through like movies or TV or whatever that were all produced in the USA. And so even the idea of throwing away food or using food in a way that isn't meant to sustain people through energy or calories and nutrition, at the same time, you have huge amounts of waste in certain places coupled with food insecurity in a lot of other places. And so that then links into this this other concept or term being food ways or the networks of food. How is food produced? How is it consumed? How is it uh, distributed? And where really the, the biggest issue there, you know, that we might point to is a distribution issue as to the production of waste in incredible amounts in some cases and the lack of access to healthy, sustainable, nutritious food on, on the other. And so thinking about food ways, uh, and one way of thinking about that is where does your food come from if you have access to it? And uh, that's something I'll kind of tease out a bit more as, as we get into this. Uh, and then the other term that I wanted to, to talk about and introduce uh, as well is this idea of either food justice or uh, food sovereignty or decolonizing food. They're distinct, but they're very closely related in my mind in regards to the political role that food plays, right? And so food justice would be uh, looking at a variety of people's experiences and realities and how they're positioned within a particular society or culture and in regards to the insecurity or the waste or the food ways or the lack of access or the like, et cetera, on and on, would be referring to food justice, right? How can this paradigm become more equitable? Whereas, you know, food sovereignty or decolonizing food refers more kind of specifically to issues of indigenous food ways and the, the disruption of that through uh, coloniality um, and the paradigm of Western modernity, which is very closely linked because you have an indigenous experience, but then you may also have a class or racialized or gendered experience. And so for me, I think about them uh, very much closely related in thinking about food sovereignty and, and, and food justice. Now, one of the terms that I became aware of once I was introduced to all this stuff was something that I still see quite a bit, um, which is the idea of a food desert which is a term used to refer to a place that is absent of good, nutritious, healthy food, the, like such as where I grew up, you know, um, and such as uh, the, you know, one of the first neighborhoods I lived in here in Aotearoa as well, in Tabukimakoro, where most of the food that was accessible, meaning close by or cheap, was, you know, high calorie, low nutrition, and things like a dairy or a corner mart or a petrol or gas station, the lack of 
other food options available also right and so there's a there's a class issue here but also these communities often are are racialized in particular ways and so there's a racial issue there also and then there's also the colonial issue as to that particular relationship also and so it's a really interesting term though however which i want to tease out here in a second but the other one that i've heard as well is a food swamp which refers to instead of the absence of healthy, nutritious food, it's about the inundation of unhealthy foods or, you know, the, the, again, these high calorie, low nutritious uh, food. And then the fact that that's cheaper and more available. So if you think about, you know, at least for me, like even my experience here when we first moved um, to Tamaki Makoto here in Auckland the area that we lived in and, the, and still where we do now, like there's a clear divide to me in regards to finding food that will fill you up that'll give you plenty of calories and that's less expensive versus let's say food that might be more nutritious but may not fill you up um, and will also be more expensive and so thinking about those things there's particular racial cultural and class-based experiences there however to refer to both a desert or a swamp is is actually quite tricky when taking into consideration indigenous perspectives to place. I want to attribute Devon Peña, who is, um, I would call him a food anthropologist, who also does Chicanequi's studies uh, as well. Um, and it was at a, a conference a few years back that I was uh, had the privilege of presenting together with him. He reminded that the desert is an indigenous place. The swamp is an indigenous place. And that if you are ancestrally linked to those places or if you still live in those places that that is the source of your life and so to refer to a desert as the absence of you know is very much closely linked to a colonial and racialized perspective as well as referring to a swamp in a negative sense as to the inundation of poor nutrition also right which again if these are your sources of life then it's it's quite problematic to think of it in those terms Again, referring to kind of modernity, indigeneity, uh, previous episode there. But um, Devon Peña suggested an alternative that I really liked, which was to refer to these areas as food junkyards, which were maybe more appropriately uh, termed as such to reflect our position in time and space, as well as um, leaving room for a different way of relating to place that honors indigenous peoples who are of the desert or of the swamp or even of a cosmopolitan area also. And so a junkyard would then refer to a kind of a socially constructed, you know, modern wasteland of sorts. And so I like that. And so I use that now. And, you know, just again, thinking about just introducing some terms, uh, some words, and some ideas to to kind of begin to broaden the way we might think about food. So the, the next thing I wanted to kind of uh, introduce and think about as well, which is something that has been on my mind for, for quite some time and is something that I'm, I'm quite interested in as well, is for lack of better words here, right? Because there's probably more appropriate ways of expressing this, but at least to introduce an initial uh, introduction, thinking about staple foods versus, let's say, ritual foods, which may be interchangeable. So I don't mean to say that 
a particular food is always in one of these categories or the other, um, but, but rather different functions um, and purposes that may change depending on context or event or place or, or, or many other factors. Now, staple you know, might be considered a sacred food for a group of people. But it, my what I mean here is kind of a primary source of nutrition and calories for a group of people um, that could be very closely linked to cosmogony or cosmology or, or worldview. And I introduced this a little bit in a, a previous episode on the solstice tamales. And we'll just want to kind of build on that a little bit here in relation to the idea of a ritual food or maybe that food itself in a ritualized context and how these play different functions and roles within our relationships to food. And I think it's interesting for me in my personal experience how a giving the example of, of corn, for example, or ishim or wa that I, I gave previously with tamales, you know, has a a sacred function, a staple function as a primary source of calories and nutrition yet depending on how certain types of corn or aspects of corn such as like corn pollen or corn seed can have a very kind of you know agricultural function with planting but it may also have a ritual function in regards to offerings and that is then when it shifts into this kind of set apart ritual uh, function and so for me that's always an interesting thing to think about on the other hand there's another way of thinking about it as well in regards to specific foods that are reserved almost exclusively or specifically for rituals uh, and in the case of of my ancestry or or one of my ancestries as we knock uh, as a maya is thinking about cacao or cacao or chocolate which I'm not going to talk about in this episode or even the next one, but but I do plan to at some point. Um, I just have to have a little bit more time to put together some of my materials for it. But that is one example where here you have a a food that is almost uh, exclusively set apart for ritual functions, such as for elite ceremonies, for uh, what we might call quote-unquote religious ceremony, for what we might uh, refer to as a wedding ceremony or political functions, and, and on and on. Uh, quite similar, actually, to kava, which I will talk about, not in these episodes either, but soon, uh, in in a, the context of the moana or one solwara. And so, again, just thinking about these different ways in which we might relate to food and to kind of build on the idea of a uh, of a staple food one of my experiences that really kind of opened this up to me was living in the philippines oh man it was ages ago now maybe 15 years or so and i was there for a couple of years i was there as a mormon missionary and which I may talk about it sometime if people are interested in it. But one of the things that really hit me was an, a new relationship to rice. And so when I say, you know, where does your food come from? I am referring to where is it produced? How is it produced? How is it distributed? How did it get to you? But I'm also referring to like, where did it come from before that? Where is its, you know, most uh, original site of emergence and what is the relationship that developed in that initiation into the social realm? And so rice for me, or like steamed rice, for example, was something I ate with Chinese takeaway. Like that's how I had come to relate to rice. Growing up, 
you know, kind of working class community. It was a special treat, actually, to have, you know, Chinese takeaway. Uh, however, you know, I didn't really eat a whole lot of rice. I would always put just maybe a little bit. And sometimes that was fried rice. Uh, and then the rest of the food was kind of the main thing. And when I, you know, arrived in the Philippines and began to relate to rice in a new way, it really opened up my eyes to... I had no idea where rice came from. Now, rice, there are many traditions of rice. I'm just going to share my personal experience with the traditions of rice in the Philippines, um, at least how I experienced it and learned to relate to it. And one of the things that helped me understand how to relate with rice differently was that there were so many words for it. And so I was, as I was learning Tagalog, which is one of the many languages there that I believe there's over a hundred across the the many islands that are there and in Tagalog there was many words for rice um, so one of those is palay which is rice that's growing in the field palayan would be the rice field itself but then there's also bigas which is once it has been like harvested, there's also the word, you know, saing, which is rice that's cooking. So it's in the cooking process. And then once it's finished, you know, being steamed, it's kanin. Most of the time it was just cooking out of a pot. And so what ends up happening when you cook it in a pot is you end up with a little bit of a, of a browned crust at the bottom of the pot. And there's a, the word for that called tutong. And, you know, there's so many more words for rice. There's many different kinds. And this really kind of opened up a whole realm of complexity. And I realized, oh, rice is the main thing. Like that's your, your calorie source, your energy source. And then you add other nutrients with vegetables and maybe meat on occasion. Meat was something that was expensive. And so it wasn't something you had all the time. And most of the meat that I did have was often seafood or fish. I was really healthy during that time. I was walking a lot and uh, eating pretty much steamed rice with vegetables and fish on occasion and on an even more rare occasion, maybe some other type of, of meat like pork or whatever. And so that was a, a really uh, eye, big eye-opener for me. Uh, and I realized, oh, I've been eating rice wrong this whole time. And no wonder <laughs> I wasn't eating it healthily. Like I, I, wasn't I wasn't treating it or relating with it as a staple food. And, you know, once you begin to to think about staples you know in our contemporary context for many people there is still the role of staple foods in a kind of a primary way in most of the world however in other parts of the world such as where i currently live and where i lived previously such as the u.s or new zealand people you know at least in my experience it's a much wider variety access to things because of wealth and, and consumption and all kinds of different things and exploitation globally and whatnot and it, it was a that was another thing that i had to deal with was learning to eat something regularly like daily even and uh, that was a a bit of a challenge at first because I was wanting a, a greater variety that I had become accustomed to, even though I had come from a working class environment, because there is also a global power relation in this. And so that was another big experience for me is kind of learning to depend on a particular food. And so that's a challenge I'd, I'd open up to think about, like, can you, how long can you rely on a staple and, and how does it go? How soon do you get tired of it? Um, and not that you can't pre present it and prepare it in a variety of ways. Of course you can. It, but I think that becomes easier the more you know about that particular food. When I was paired up with people that were from the Philippines, it was almost 
like you'd get sick almost if you didn't have rice. That's how important it was. And it reminded me a lot of the Maya relationship to corn. And so for me, I, I was just like, oh, and that was my big kind of aha moment, if you will, was rice is corn, meaning that rice was like our relationship to what, to Ishim, to our sacred food, our primary food source. And we have a, you know, immense variety of ways of preparing that primary source of calories and uh, nutrition. And then even in my experiences uh, with Tongans, give a shout out to Mona Uluave Hafoka, who first introduced this word to me, but Kiki was another one where Kiki is this word for the food that you have with your staple. And in that case, it would be like root tubers, um, such as ufi, like, which is a, a giant yam, and not to be confused with the U.S. term yam, which often refers to sweet potato. Um, that would be kumala in the Tongan context, or kumara here in, in Aotearoa. And so you have all these root tubers, like ufi, or, or even talo, or uh, taro in English, um, that take up kind of this primary source um, and then whatever you have with it. And that was like this other word that I had learned in the Philippines as well, in Tagalog, which is ulam. And ulam means the same thing. It's pretty much anything you have with your staple. So in the context of the Philippines, people might even ask you, hey, what are you having for ulam? Which is equivalent to saying, what are you having for you know lunch or dinner or whatever? But really, it just like in the way I understand it, literally means, what are you having with rice? <laughs> what is your partner or pairing with rice because rice is always going to be constant and present as as a food source and so i found that was interesting because then you know i was making these connections as a maya i'm making these connections with my you know experience and relations uh in tonga and with tongans and seeing these similarities across the globe and also um you know kind of these unique differences and expressions of relating to food and so that was something that well since i was exposed to this have you know, have been continuing to think about and wanted to share that as an introduction to kind of think about things a bit differently as well. And so to kind of close up this this first part of thinking about wa, me'akai, food. One of the things that I've been also exploring and trying to be healthier because uh, <laughs> uh, going through grad school with a large family, I've got four kids and, you know, working and trying to pay bills and all that kind of stuff. It's been hard to be as healthy as I would like to be. Like I've constantly been aware of my unhealthy habits and always trying to do the best that I can with it. And at this moment, I finished my studies about a year and a half ago. And this year I had a full-time job and, you know, still kind of paycheck to paycheck, but breaking even in a way that I haven't been able to in a long time. And that's opened up these kind of privileges in my life that uh, I haven't had in a long time or ever maybe I can't recall of being able to focus on what I'm eating, being able to have more time to prepare food and meals. And again, I do love to cook. And so being able to do that more is always great for me. But as I've been doing so, I've been re-engaging with kind of all kinds of different ideas that are constantly circulating. And I'm not a fan of fad diets or even the contemporary notion of dieting. Um, I don't 
experience that to be sustainable. I don't think it addresses the root causes of what people eat and why they eat what they do. Um, however, I have been looking at stuff and I've been watching documentaries and, and the like. And I've actually also been following a little bit of kind of this growing vegan movement, at least growing in the spaces that I'm observing. And I'm not making a suggestion for people to go or not to, but uh, I personally have been trying to uh, decrease the amount I, I consume meat. I think that, you know, now that I have more ability to do so, you know, not that I haven't been aware of it. Like I've, always, I've been aware that there's a massive ecological impact from kind of industrialized meat production. However, even though I've known it for many years, uh, if that's cheap, like that's what I'm going to get. And so um, that's why I'm, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't because I, I do see this as very much linked to people's access um, and ability, but also culturally, right? And I remember, you know, when I was uh, being exposed to some of these things years ago now, I would get defensive and upset like when people would say stuff like, you know, all oh, that stuff isn't healthy or whatever. And for me, I took it, you know, that way because some of the stuff they were referring to was the kind of what had become staples in my life because they were cheap, you know, especially as a young uh, adult or whatever, you know, like maybe can't go out to eat at a healthy place, but dollar menu that, you know, they had at uh, different fast food places was easy way that you could feed a lot of people and eat together and get, you know, really low quality, high calorie, low nutrition. But it would be something difficult for me to confront that because that had become part of my cultural identity. Um, the same as a lot of other foods like instant noodles, right? Or two minute noodles, as they call it here, or, you know, uh, ramen, as they would call it where I grew up. And you know, like it's a highly processed food, hard to process as well in your body and not a whole lot of nutrition, but you get some calories and it tastes good too, at least for me. And there's a variety of ways that we would eat it too. And so, you know, thinking that, oh, maybe that's not something I should be eating all the time, you know, um, but especially as a student and whatever, like this was something that was regularly uh, part of my diet. And so whenever that would be challenged, that was a hard thing for me to kind of confront. And so, that is one of the ways in which we learn, you know, to identify with particular foods as well, at least in my experience, where there's a class identity there and there's like a socioeconomic one and there's also a racial one. Like I remember thinking, you know, healthy food was white food. And I'm like, later on, I'm like, wow, that's so messed up that that was how I came to understand through my experiences, those things. And then some of that stuff that I would have referred to and maybe at times still slipped saying is, oh, that's fancy food. Oftentimes that stuff came from an ancestral diet, either of my own or somebody else's. And so I've had to kind of work through those things. And, you know, it's interesting for me to think about you know, observing this kind of growing vegan movement in the spaces that I've been who are trying to tackle a lot of different things. And sometimes it's very uh, problematically racialized. Uh, other times it's kind of uh, racialized in kind of justice uh, frameworks. Um, either way, though, it's interesting to me that it's proposing kind of a cultural shift of what we eat and how we eat, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do, I think, in society. And and so one of the things that I'm always kind of curious and interested about is seeing, you know, all these recipes for making, you know, like vegan burgers or meals that maybe are familiar to the mainstream 
societies that people might live in, but then making them vegan. And I always think, why? Like, what's the point? But I have to always then remember, oh, it's because it's so cultural, right? And so, you know, because you you want to have something familiar. And then so that's why for me, it's interesting to think about kind of indigenous or ancestral relationships where there are some foods that have always or already or very easily could be vegan. And I also think about like the Ital diet, which I've been familiar with for a while, which is the the Rasta, because um, I'm a huge reggae fan as well. And to me, I'm like, this is essentially <laughs> vegan, but it's called Ital, which is, um, you know, a Rasta way of saying vital foods, right? Raw, natural foods. And so, you know, there are ways, of, there are already these things that don't have to be made familiar in those contexts. Yet, Anyways, I'm not trying to be judgmental of it. It's just an interesting observation for me to think of because I've been looking at a lot of different things just in trying to uh, increase the variety of types of foods that I have and I prepare um, to try to decrease as well, uh, especially kind of the industrialized you know, meats as much as I'm able to and being aware that not everybody has the same levels of access or ability to do so. Like ultimately we do what's convenient. I had a conversation years ago now when I was first exploring this with uh, Sonia Angilao and Inoke Hafoka, good mates of mine who um, were like, yeah, man, like you do what's convenient. You do what's available to you. And you know, like you get canned food and has a high shelf life. You know, if you, if you don't have access to a car or if you don't have a car or if you don't have the time then you know you get what's going to have a high shelf life you know you think about fresh fruits and vegetables you have to go to the you know to pick that stuff up regularly and or even if you know there's a growing gardening movement and again it takes a lot of time and sometimes you know you have to invest in a large amount for it to you know become uh, savings for you rather than, you know, more of an investment. And so there's all these factors to take into consideration within that. However, like the the point that I just kind of wanted to bring up was in my engagement with it at the moment and re-exploring these things, it's interesting to me to think about the role of culture, right? The The push for a culture shift by some, the kind of complete lack of understanding of the role of culture in other situations, um, but also just kind of the role that some of these types of food have already played within certain cultures for a long time or that easily could be without having to change them if we had a greater relationship to a variety of things. And so just to close up, the last thing I wanted to share in this episode was that ultimately this is personal and I think that what is healthy is and what I and my personal belief is that what is healthy is going to be personal um, to individuals. Everyone is different. Everyone re- reacts and responds to foods differently, such as like let's say allergies or intolerances or um, cultural understandings uh, or even kind of religious prohibitions or guidelines, and on and on and on. And for me, the the more that we can come to understand those things, the better we might be able to make choices for ourselves, um, whatever that might be. And again, I'm not proposing any particular diet, but just wanted to open up thinking about that stuff. And for me, one example was, you know, I'd grown up eating so many dairy products, you know, because the school curriculum, 
was very much linked to the agricultural industry in the United States. And there's, you know, the big farm, industrial farming uh, corporations that are closely linked to the state. And we were being told you should have this much milk a day and all these other things. Um, eggs were bad and now they're good. And like all these different things that are constantly shifting and changing. Um, and it turns out, you know, sugar, refined processed sugar is actually one of the worst things. Yet, because food is political, what are you being told? What are you not being told? Anyways, I had had milk all my life, and I think it was making me sick. I I think, I haven't been tested, but I think I'm lactose intolerant. However, like, growing up the way that I did and where I did, like, I just never thought about it. Then after I went to the Philippines, where I pretty much didn't have any dairy for two years. You know, they did have some uh, milk products available, but it was like the dry powdered milk. I never bought it or either you or UHT, which is ultra high temperature, meaning it doesn't have to be refrigerated, processed in a particular way. And, you know, I think I had dairy maybe a couple of times, but otherwise I pretty much didn't have it the whole time. And I felt really good. And when I got home, you know, I started engaging with all these dairy products that I love. And I still am a huge fan of cheese and have realized, well, maybe I, I need to uh, make some uh, different choices because of how my body reacts to it. Um, and so I, I have reduced tremendously. I don't, I haven't had like cow's milk in ages. Um, I, I, if I do have milks, it's going to be like the nut milks and stuff. And, and that was never because of a, you know, health kick initially. It was, I mean, it was for health, but it was just because i felt better with it. I wasn't thinking about it in other terms. And so I still have dairy stuff, but I've reduced significantly because for me personally, I was feeling a particular way. And so that's what I mean by it's personal and like it's different for everybody. We inherit different uh, genes, even if you're in the same family and you may process or not process things in different ways, um, but that it's okay to to do those things. You know, uh, the last example I'll give you is I had a, a another Tokoa who was living um, uh, with us in the the first year here in Aotearoa and then he moved overseas but when he left he had left you know like a this big container of fish oil pills uh, which he would take it, along with like vitamins and all this other stuff and it was there and I was like I didn't want it to go to waste and so I started taking them <laughs> but I started having an allergic reaction to them but I didn't know what an allergic reaction was and so here I am this grown man with you know four kids and you know, I'm like ignoring this allergic reaction that I'm getting because I'm taking these fish oil pills. I remember I'd, and it was wintertime too, and I remember I'd be going, I was ah, man, and maybe it's just because it's cold and I'm getting old or whatever, and I'm not that old, but, you know, I'm in my early 30s at the time, and it's just like, what's going on? Uh, my hands and, you know, fists would like swell up, and it was just getting worse and more frequent, and I mean, I even, my, my lip, started like it was like oh what's that movie hitch if you've ever seen hitch when uh will smith has this allergic reaction to shellfish that's kind of how i turned a couple of times but i was just like hiding it and then one time <laughs> my partner became aware and she's like i think you're having an allergic reaction i was like nah nah i just gotta get over it and i just i was like refusing to look at this or or phrase or confront this because i kind of grew up in a a way of think like that was something that i never had really I was like, allergies, isn't that, I don't, you just kind of deal with it. And so um, it's okay to 
take care of yourself is all I'm saying for anybody who may come from a similar kind of class background as myself. Um, eventually I stopped taking those fish oil, uh, pills, you know, having realized that I was having an allergic reaction and, um, and everything, and it all went away and I was fine. Thankfully I can eat seafood. I just couldn't have such high concentration through that. Um, you know, cause that was something I had to learn for myself personally, but you know, just as an example of, of ways of thinking about kind of connecting with it. So I'll leave it at that for this one. Um, thanks for listening in. Uh, part two, I'm going to look at a couple of specific examples uh, uh, around food and thinking about uh, the role that it plays or played or can play in the Moana and one Sawara as well as on Turtle Island from a few examples that I'm uh, somewhat familiar with. So until until then, Sibalak Maltyosh, many thanks.